good to have everyone with us this morning. We do have a number of visitors with us, and we appreciate your being here. We do have one special visitor with us, Brother Michael Toby, who preaches for the congregation in Selkirk, Ontario, is with us this morning. And Brother Michael's in the area, in fact, drove all night just about to get here this morning. And uh, we're glad to have him with us. For those of you who are new members, you may not know that uh, Michael, by preaching there, we help support the congregation. And uh, in that way, we're helping support Michael in preaching the gospel. And I encourage you to get to know him. He's such a wonderful, uh, great gospel preacher. We're glad to have him with us this morning. If you'll open your Bibles back again to that passage in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin our study in verse 11, and we're going to study through the end of the chapter. As we are studying through the book of Colossians, we recognize that there is a strong emphasis on Jesus as the Christ. There's all kinds of diversions or all kinds of deceptions that are potentially in our pathway. And as you and I study this passage, we recognize there's an importance on being focused in the right direction. And the theme that we're going to use this morning for this lesson is don't go back. And I'd like to begin with a question as I have done each week. Have you ever had someone to tempt you to return to your sinful past? For instance, let me just sort of try to break this down. Maybe you were a person who in your teenage years, early 20s, decided you wanted to sow your wild oats, and you got out and you participated in some very ungodly things. You may have gone to bars drinking. You may have participated in a number of ungodly activities. And then you became a Christian, or you were restored And then all of a sudden, someone comes up to you and they say to you, hey, let's go out to the bar tonight. Let's let's get drunk. And you say, no, 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 I don't do those things anymore. Or you say, you know what, that sounds pretty tempting to me. Well, I want you to go with me to the book of 2 Peter, to chapter 2 and verses 18 through 21. And that's exactly the situation that Peter is envisioning taking place. He says, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who are actually escaping from those who lived in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him is he also brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. He says the last state ends up being worse than the first. Some people find themselves being gravitating towards sinful past, and he says, that's not good. In fact, when you go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, he would say, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, 
drinking parties and abominable idolatries. His big picture, if you will, is we have done enough of that sinful past. We don't need to be doing that anymore. But yet there are people who will try to draw us back. In fact, many in the early church had those who desire to pull them back into their former lifestyles. When you think about the Jewish people, they had people trying to pull them back into their Judaism. Why did you leave us? Why did you go off and become a follower of Christ? Was it not good enough for us to just simply be a Jew, to worship the Lord as He has uh, given us by Moses? Or you can think about the Gentiles. Many of them were involved in their pagan rituals. They would go to the idol's temple and they would participate in a lot of things. Many times it would involve drunkenness. Many times it would involve sexual immorality. These things were a part of their lifestyle. And people who became Christians had somebody trying to draw them back in. Now let's go to Colossians 2, beginning with verse 11. We'll read and study through verse 29. And we're going to look at three things in this passage. Number one will be a comparison and a contrast with the Old Testament circumcision and baptism. Number two will be a caution about the ceremonialism, this Old Testament Judaism, how it had such an impact on their lives. And then number three will be a caution against cultism in verses 18 and 19 and really going all the way through the end of the chapter. Let's go back and look at verses 11 and 12. He says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, notice with me here, he's going to use a figure of comparison which was readily understood by them. You know, today circumcision does take place on the little boys, but it is primarily a hygienic thing, a medical procedure. However, in the biblical times, going back all the way to Abraham, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but just notice with me Genesis chapter 17 verse 10, and then we'll notice part of verse 14. God said to Abraham, This is my covenant with you. You shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You drop down to verse 14, and he says, The person that who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from among his people, for he has broken my covenant. That was a law that they were to participate in. It was a physical procedure. 
However, it was much more than that. Sometimes we tend to think that the Old Testament didn't place great emphasis on the heart, but it did. In fact, I want you to notice with me that it also has reference to the cutting off of one's sins in his life and that of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Chapter 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The picture that Moses is giving here, it wasn't just that physical act, but it was a spiritual act of cutting off of a person's sins. Paul followed up with that in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from, not from men, but from God. What is Paul saying? Exactly the same thing that Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy. And that is, is that circumcision was not just this fleshly thing, but was a spiritual activity. Now, when I take all that and I go to the book of Colossians, I understand he's using a comparison. Now, baptism, according to verse 12, is where those sins are cut off. Notice with me, Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You see, what it's, when a person is baptized into Christ, those sins are cut off. That's where they're forgiven. Or Acts 22, verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Now notice how Peter explains not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying that your baptism is not to take the physical dirt off. It's not to wipe that away. It is for the forgiveness of sins. So as I am comparing and contrasting the Old Testament circumcision and how it meant the cutting off of sins, and now I see baptism, I am beginning to grasp the picture that he wants me to understand. I will tell you by way of observation here, buried with him in baptism indicates that baptism is an immersion. You know, today a lot of people don't seem to understand what the Bible means by baptism. But it means that a person is buried. That is, you put them under. That's the reason why when someone is baptized here, there's a baptistry behind me. It's not the only place a person can be baptized. But you immerse someone. You put them completely under the water. But it is essential to see in this passage that just like Jesus died and was buried, he rose again. You and I are raised 
to a new life. Paul, I think, put it a little better in Romans 6, 4 to 6, for our understanding, by saying, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, put that into the theme of our discussion this morning. Don't go back. You have been raised with Christ to live a new life. Don't go back to that old system that you were a part of. Don't go back to those old sins that you used to commit. You are now a new person in the Lord's sight. Verse 5, For if we have been united Together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Don't go back into that bondage. Now, point number two is found in verses 14 through 17. And I want you to understand the background of this, so let's read it first of all. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, um, Paul just used a figure from the Old Testament. In fact, going all the way back to Abraham, that of circumcision. And I will tell you that the early New Testament church struggled with that concept of binding that. Acts chapter 15. Unless you're circumcised and keep the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul, in the book of Galatians, had to emphasize that in Christ Jesus, being circumcised or uncircumcision is nothing. And then he would say that if you are circumcised, you are a debtor to keep that old law. So having used that illustration, Paul is going to now warn them about binding these ceremonial activities. He uses some unmistakable terms. Just look with me at what you found there in verses 14 through 17. He says he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements. The term wiped out itself brings to mind the same idea of the forgiveness of sins from Acts 3 and verse 19. The handwriting requirements is that Old Testament writing, that Old Testament law of Moses. Acts 3, 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Wiped out, blotted out. The second thing he says that he has taken it out of the way. That Old Testament law was in the way of people looking at Christ. Now we're going to have to think more about that when we get to our conclusion. But you have to look at any impediment, 
anything that gets in the way of a person serving the Lord. And he's taken that out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. That makes me think of Galatians 2 and verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When he nailed it to the cross, he put that Old Testament law to death. It was brought to an end. But you see, they were binding certain ceremonial aspects of the law. Let me focus your attention, if you will, to a couple of passages in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus 23 both begin with very similar words. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals on the earth. And then he goes on to explain. The animal had to have a parted hoof, had to chew the cud. That meant that animals like pigs would have been unclean. Animals like cattle would have been clean. He then began to explain the kind of fish, and if it had to have scales and fins, and you would notice that some fish like trout would have been clean, others like catfish would have been unclean. And so he described for them the various kinds of foods they could eat. You get to verse 2 of chapter 23. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And the Lord would begin to describe through Moses the feast of the Passover, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of weeks, the feast of tabernacles, There was the Sabbath every seventh day on Saturday. They would gather together to worship. These were days of holy convocation when God's people would be called together to worship. So there were dietary laws and there were feasts and holy days. And he says, let no man judge you in regard to food or drink or feast or holy days. You know, you don't let somebody come along and start binding these Old Testament teachings. They were never intended to be permanent. God had a plan that they were to exist for a particular period of time and then they would be taken away. To the Galatians, he said very plainly to them that the law was a schoolmaster, a tutor to bring us to Christ. But he's going to use a figure that I think is very revealing. And he talks about the shadow and the substance. When you get to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and going back even to chapter 8, Paul will use that same terminology, or the writer of the book of Hebrews will, when he says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who approach him or those who draw nigh. The law had a shadow. If you will imagine here, there's plenty of lights here, But if I've got my hand here and the light is shining from this direction, on this side it will cast a shadow. 
The shadow is not the real. It's only a figure, an outline, if you will. That's the way the law was. The real was what was in heaven. The real was what's in the New Testament. And the Old Testament was only the shadow. Let me illustrate that Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5. Paul said, Who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make things according to the pattern, all things according to the pattern, shown you on the mountain. So when Moses received the directions for building that tabernacle, there was a pattern. But the pattern was patterned after heaven and the church. You see, the holy place is a pattern of the church. The most holy place is heaven where God is at. In fact, he'll even talk about entering to that which is within the veil going into heaven. So his caution is, do not draw back into Judaism. Let me give you Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11. But now after you have known God, or rather been known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. I'm afraid that you people are going to go back into that old system. Galatians 2 and verse 18 just popped in my head. For if I build again those things which I have destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. If I go back and I try to build what I have formerly said, I, I, I'm not going to do that anymore, I make myself a transgressor. Now here's the application for people today. Here's a person who's converted out of a denomination. He's been a part of a man-made religion. And he becomes a Christian. Are there people who are going to say, Hey, you need to come back over with us. Was it not good enough for us to worship God the way we did? And you don't go back. Because once a man has found the truth, you don't give it up. Now, very quickly, let's look at verses 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and are not holding fast the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with an increase that is from God. At stake... Paul says, is your reward. And notice, he says, let no one cheat you out of that. I really enjoy studying the words themselves, and the word for cheat here goes back to a word which means to be decided against. Like, for instance, here's a man running to a base, and there's an umpire standing right over him, and he says, you're out. He decided against you. And we would say, he cheated me. That's, that's this word right here. 
Don't let anybody decide against you with regards to your reward. That really sounds a lot like the word judge back in verse 16. Let no man judge you in respect to food or drink. In other words, don't let somebody else decide what you are going to receive. You don't let those people try and pull you back into a former religion. You don't let those people try and pull you back into a sinful lifestyle. You don't let them take your life. You don't let them judge you or take your reward from you. Now the question is, what are they saying? And why do I call this a caution of cultism? Do you know what a cult is? We tend to think of cults or people like those in Scientology and maybe Jim Jones and those people who went down to Guyana. But a cult is anything that supplants the revelation from God with a revelation from man. The ones that are often referred to as the four major cults are Christian science because they replace the writings of Mary Baker Eddy or Seventh-day Adventist Ellen G. White or Jehovah's Witness, the writings of Charles Taze Russell or the Mormons, the writings of Joseph Smith. You see, that's the reason why they're considered to be cults. When you look at this, you're going to find that there are people who are giving laws separate and apart from God's laws. Notice with me verses 21 through 23. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerning things that perish with the using, according to the doctrines and commandments, or commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but there are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What Paul is saying is, these are men's laws. They've created them. They're the ones telling you what to do, and they're telling you to be live an aesthetic life, which simply means you deny yourself any pleasure whatsoever. You don't enjoy the food you eat. You don't enjoy the company of someone's with you. You have to always just be somber. And they would say, because that you need to fast so that you don't have not food. You know, the monks, they walk around in all this uh, very basic garb. And they won't talk. You know, they take a vow of silence. Paul said none of this is any value against the indulgence of the flesh. You see, many ritualistic Jews, but like the Pharisees, believed in a false sense of piety. That if I will just somehow let everybody see me looking like this, that that's going to make me better. Jesus in Matthew 6.16 said, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. There's a lot of them who wanted this outward show. And Paul says it may have the appearance of value, but it really doesn't. And so there's a caution against getting involved with the cultic practice like the worshiping of angels. You see, the truth is 
one, the only way to not drift back into one's former life is to hold fast to the head. I want you to look carefully with me at verse 19. This is, in my judgment, the key verse in this whole section. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together by the joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Why is it that a person would get involved in Old Testament Judaism after they had left it? Why is it a person might go back into their pagan lifestyle and all these cultic practices? Because they are no longer holding on to the head. The head's Jesus. When we have people who are leaving the Lord and leaving His church, it's because they no longer are holding fast to Jesus. But when they leave Him, what are they leaving? He says, from whom the whole body nourished do you understand that if you cut something off, it's going to die? If I took a knife and cut my hand off, there's no longer the blood flow. No longer the nourishment that comes through that. And because of that, that hand would die. You know what happens when someone is cut off from the Lord? They die. But if you remain connected, he says... They are knit together by the joints and the ligaments and they grows with the increase that is from God. You see, our whole bodies are able to work together and thrive and do well because we remain connected to the head. Don't go back. Don't give up. We are raised to walk a new life with Christ. Now I am the one final question. Where are you? Are you in Christ? You know, Paul said we are buried with Him through baptism. Are you a Christian? This morning, I am sure that in our audience, we have those who have not yet become Christians, and you are contemplating, you're thinking about, I know I need to do this. Well, why not? Go ahead and do it now. What's holding you back? Is it fear? Is it something that you feel that's missing in your life? If you need to know more, please ask. We'll sit down. We'll study with you. But if you know what you need to do, there's no reason to keep waiting. As Ananias told Saul, why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. Now let me address those of us who are Christians. Folks, here's a sad reality. There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are not living it. That's a simple fact. They have gone back and they have started participating in the ungodly things of the world. If you have... As I read at the very beginning of the lesson from Second Peter, the last state with you is worse than the first. You're actually in worse shape than you were before you actually became a Christian. 
you have made a conscious decision. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what the Lord tells me to do. Your condition is lost. And if you don't correct it, you don't get to go to heaven. If that's who you are, you need to repent. And you need to be restored. This morning, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come as we stand and sing?